Welcome to Contain This. I'm Camilla Burcott, a senior advisor with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade's Vaccine Access Task Force, which will oversee the Australian government's recently announced Regional Vaccine Access and Health Security Initiative. This initiative will help to ensure that people across the Pacific and Southeast Asia are able to access safe, effective and affordable COVID-19 vaccines when they become available by supporting both procurement of vaccine doses and strengthening immunization policy and delivery pathways in our region. On today's show, we will discuss the issue of vaccine uptake in the Indo-Pacific region with two experts in the fields of vaccine development and delivery from Australia and Indonesia. We'll also hear from the field with the story of a senior immunization nurse in Tonga. We'll begin by talking to Professor Julie Leesk from the Susan Wakel School of Nursing and Midwifery at the University of Sydney. She's a member of the Australian Regional Immunization Alliance, visiting professorial fellow at the National Centre for Immunization Research and Surveillance, and holds a range of advisory roles with the World Health Organization. In addition, Julie has recently been appointed to the expert advisory group that will guide the new Regional Vaccine Access and Health Security Initiative. Julie, welcome to Contain This. To begin, can you tell us about yourself and your interest in vaccination in our region? Yeah, so I'm, I'm basically a, a social scientist who specialises in vaccination. So I look at what people think, feel and do about vaccination and our research looks at supporting vaccination programs and practice. I have a nursing and midwifery background and I've been in public health um, since 1996 when I did my Master of Public Health. So um, I've been privileged to become more involved in immunisation in the region just in the last couple of years, really, through the establishment of the Australian Regional Immunisation Alliance, which brings together people who have high-level expertise in vaccination around Australia to um, continue existing work they do with countries in the region or to establish new work. And we've been fortunate to um, receive a grant from the, the um, Pacific Island Development Program to support countries in, um, in their vaccination programs um, and also to support surveillance of vaccine-preventable diseases. And that work extends to uh, Timor-Leste, it extends to Papua New Guinea, and, of course, the um, Pacific Island countries as well. So I and Fiona Russell are leading the work in the Pacific Island countries. Um, Professor Russell has a huge amount of experience in vaccination programs in the region, so it's a real privilege to be learning from my colleagues. And I also had the opportunity to uh, assist um, the, the WHO office in Fiji and Samoa in January as part of the Samoan measles outbreak um, recovery effort. How can we assure high uptake of the COVID vaccine if one proves successful? So we've, we've got to do a lot of things. Um, and, you know, governments right now are looking at how they can ensure, first of all, that they get the vaccine. Um, that they have access to it in their country um, through uh, facilities like, um, you know, the, the, the COVAX facility um, and other efforts, multi-agency efforts at a global level to ensure that there's equitable access to vaccines in all countries, not just wealthy countries. So that's number one. The second is making sure that 
um, the vaccine is safely distributed um, and the cold chain is maintained. And, of course, that could present a new challenge with some of these vaccine candidates that require extremely low temperatures for storage. The, so there's the, the distribution, the cold chain, making sure that the services that are actually giving the vaccine have enough vaccine and you don't have too much going to another area. So having that balance right in the distribution, they're all major challenges. And then you've got the sort of programmatic strategy such as, you know, do you have, have you been able to set up services that are capable, have existing capabilities in delivering vaccines like this to the community um, and that the services are very accessible for the community um, do you have very good systems in place for the whole vaccination procedure and how the vaccine is explained to people, um, how side effects are explained, what to look out for? Do we have good systems for monitoring adverse events following immunisation? Um, so there's all those sort of system and programmatic issues. And, of course, it's very important to support um, and make sure that providers of the vaccines are sufficiently trained and upskilling um, people who, uh, A, may not be familiar with vaccination or, B, might not be familiar with giving a COVID-19 vaccine to an adult, which, of course, will be everybody initially. Um, and, then, and then you've got, you know, things, that, issues around access for people to get to the clinic as well and making sure that the clinics are convenient, have convenient opening hours um, so that people can easily reach them. Um, and so, you know, of course, there's the challenge in getting vaccines to people in outer islands, in many Pacific Island nations. And if you've got a vaccine that requires a pretty strict cold chain, how are you going to manage that practically? So all of those things need to be thought through. And then, of course, there's the communication side of things where you're making people sure that people are, are aware that they are recommended to have a vaccine and where they can go to get it. Um, and then there's the sort of the more community engagement and that's that more two-way communication that I was talking about earlier. And that's extremely important. You know, have you got your community leaders feeling informed and knowledgeable enough um, based on the limited knowledge you might have at the time? Have you engaged with religious leaders, um, provider organisations? Um, have you had an opportunity to hear what their concerns and perspectives are? And, um, and, and just making sure that there's that early frequent communication and it's communication that's two-way, not just one-way. Um, so all of those things, multi-component strategies are what work to improve vaccination rates and no one thing is going to get us high vaccination rates. So if you, do, if you have even the most perfect ways of dealing with misinformation, that's not going to cure all our vaccine uptake problems. There has been an example of a serious vaccine safety event in the Pacific in recent years. In July 2018, two infants in Samoa died after receiving the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine. Following that event, the Samoan government suspended the measles vaccination program for about 10 months. It was later established that the deaths were due to an administration error, where the nurses prepared the vaccine using an expired muscle relaxant instead of water. What lessons can we learn from that suspension of vaccination and the subsequent measles outbreak? 
there's a tendency to think, look, if we just get our messaging right, people will act. And, of course, it's much more than that. I mean, of course, in Samoa, they had to restore trust in the vaccine, which ended up, of course, being possible, and it was certainly motivated by having a lot of measles around. But it is still possible to restore um, trust in vaccines without um, having major outbreaks. Uh, I think it showed that communication needs to be two-way, and it starts with understanding the perspectives of communities and how they see things and what their um, information needs are. So in that period when the vaccine had been suspended, I would imagine there was a huge amount of hesitancy among parents in Samoa, and many certainly wouldn't want their children vaccinated even when they started to half-heartedly return, uh, restore the vaccination uh, recommendation because uh, there probably needed to be more frequent um, communication. Uh, So, you know, we learn from any vaccine safety event, whether it be Samoa's or the one that we had in Australia with a certain type of influenza vaccine for children, where there was a high rate of febrile convulsions after that vaccine was given and that particular vaccine had to be suspended in children. What we learn is that people will certainly get scared off a vaccine, but governments also get scared off communicating about the vaccine afterwards. And they actually need to do what's not intuitive, which is to communicate early and often, acknowledge uncertainty and communicate amidst uncertainty. Um, Use trusted spokespeople, be empathic, and also respect cultural ways and, and, and you know, cult, country constraints um, and those sorts of issues. Um, so I think, I think for me, Samoa, um, other vaccine issues, health emergencies, the pandemic, again and again illustrates the importance of good risk communication. And at the heart of good risk communication is accepting and involving the public, which in a practical sense means having an ear to the ground, having social listening, um, community consultation to find out the perspectives of the communities and then tailoring the information that's given according to what people need to know. Thank you, Professor Julie Leesk, for your insights. We'll now hear from Sister Afute about her experience as an immunization nurse in Tonga. Um, Our immunization program in Tonga, we started uh, in um, 1958 by introducing um, BCG vaccine. The immunization coverage um, uh, for Tonga is 99%. That's coverage we keep that uh, in high, maintain the high coverage since the last two to three decades. Immunization program in Tonga was um, started in, like I said, in 1958. And we are so thankful for the um, donors, the partners. They are, they were funding the, the vaccines. But since 2000, the government fully funded the vaccines. Uh, we have a policy and a handbook that uh, for our workers to follow, and uh, we still have our vaccines uh, procured by UNICEF. 
It is the same with uh, other Pacific Island countries. And uh, our vaccine is um, recommended by the WHO. I think this is our, our immunization in Tonga. In the meantime, we have about uh, 76 vaccinators in Tonga that's uh, uh, allocated to different uh, stations, including the other islands. Uh, I think uh, this uh, um, uh, issue is, uh, I think it's became a proper issue. Uh, the, the misconception on uh, on vaccines. There are some people they start against the immunization program because they have um, something from internet uh, talking about vaccine can cause what and what you know can cause problem to the to the kids. But even that, with the efforts of our nurses and their experience, they can convince them. They you know it's only a few. Um, who refuse immunization in Donga? Uh, it's mainly the those with the religious belief. But even that, uh, like I said, it's about 99% uh, of our immunization coverage is only a few that are refused to have the immunization. Uh, I think uh, uh, with our immunization program, we really need the help of the people, the strong partnership with uh, the people. Uh, I, I know this from my experience uh, uh, in uh, working with the immunization program. It's very uh, successful when we um, when we have a strong partnership with the community. Uh, community uh, uh, mass media campaign is very helpful. Um, community outreach just to raise the awareness of the, of the people is very um, it's uh, very helpful with uh, making clear to the community and make sure uh, the vaccine is very safe it's test um, uh, in, and it's recommended from the WHO to, to use but I think mass media campaign in the community outreach outreach just to raise the community awareness. You have been listening to Sister Afute, Supervising Public Health Sister and National EPI Coordinator in the Ministry of Health in Tonga. At this time, most South Pacific countries have reported very few or zero COVID-19 cases. However, the situation is very different in some parts of Southeast Asia. The Philippines and Indonesia have reported high numbers of COVID-19 cases starting from around March this year. Professor Amin Subandro is a lecturer in clinical microbiology at Universitas Indonesia and chairman of the Eichmann Institute for Molecular Biology, a nonprofit research body under the Ministry of Research and Technology and National Agency for Research and Innovation, located in Jakarta. He is also an honorary professor at the University of Sydney Medical School and has played a key role in building strong relationships between the Indonesian and Australian medical research communities. At the beginning of the pandemic, Professor Amin oversaw the laboratory that analyzed samples from the earliest COVID-19 cases in Indonesia. Now the Institute's work has turned towards vaccine development. Professor Amin, welcome to Contain This. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. And in terms of um, COVID-19, I understand there's a, a relatively recent partnership with, with CSIRO. Could you tell us a bit about that um, partnership and the work that's going on in, under that project? Yeah, it, uh, 
Yeah, we, we have been discussing with uh, CSIRO several times and uh, currently we are in the process of uh, finalizing the kind of MOU or implementation agreement. Yeah. Uh, the first idea was uh, we will establish a, an advisory board for vaccine research uh, consisting of uh, some Australian uh, researcher and an Eggman uh, researchers and also we propose to invite uh, vaccine researcher from other countries uh, like from European uh, institutions from US uh, probably from Japan yeah to uh, build a yeah very strong uh, advisory board yeah that is limited to the uh, vaccine development uh, yeah, we are still in the process now and just recently also we start to discuss receive advice from CSIRO and improvement of our animal facilities for example and also improvement of one uh, facilities located in in a little bit uh, outside Jakarta the facility uh, was designed as a pilot pilot uh, production facilities yeah, for biological uh, substance so the facility is already uh, prepared uh, actually has been uh, constructed uh, three or four years ago uh, it has two main facilities one is for uh, i mean for gmp facilities good manufacturing good manufacturing facilities and also the other the other side as a good uh, laboratory practice uh, facility so uh, probably in the near future we will uh, start uh, our discussion with CSIRO uh, how to improve that facility as you know uh, before we start the first phase of clinical trial we need only limited uh, amount of vaccine not mass production so that's why we need uh, a pilot production facilities i see yes so you have uh, enough to, to undertake the trials and, and develop the yeah. evidence mm -hmm. for mass production uh, i'd like to turn now to, to talk a little bit about the um the indonesian vaccine for covid 19 that's being developed um perhaps for listeners who may not be very familiar you could give a bit of an introduction about this vaccine and and why it's so important based on uh, uh several justification we finally realized that the uh, uh, herd immunity is uh, very important the herd immunity should be achieved by vaccination yeah and uh, that's why we need to have the facilities or uh, we need to have a good access to a vaccine and then uh, when we come to the number of uh, vaccine required in indonesia uh, we have to consider the number of population in Indonesia. We have 260 million population. And if we have to reach uh, herd immunity, minimally we have to vaccinate about 175 uh, million people. Right? And uh, if we uh, consider every subject should be vaccinated twice that means we would need to 350 million doses so 
Again, if we refer to the international uh, scheme like uh, COVAX or CEPI, um, the they they promise to provide Indonesia with uh, some amount of vaccine, but only probably limited to twenty or thirty thirty percent of population. Yeah, you could you could imagine that uh, the other seventy percent of of uh, the target population still need vaccine. So uh, in that case, we decided that Indonesia should not be dependent to other countries. We have to have our own sovereignty and, uh, and also we need to have our own facilities in uh, uh, developing and also producing vaccine. That's why uh, around the end of March, uh, Minister of uh, Research and Technology uh, assigned Eggman Institute to lead a consortium uh, consisting of uh, some institutions in Indonesia to uh, start research and development and production of uh, our own vaccine. And so, how is it going so far? Where are you? Where is the vaccine candidate up to? Uh, as we know, that uh, there are two main uh, uh, steps yeah, in developing vaccine. One is the first one, <clears throat> the first step is uh, laboratory uh, scale and then followed by <clears throat> industrial scale. So, uh, Eggman actually was uh, assigned as an institution to to develop the laboratory scale of vaccine. And we, we were given only 12 months to, to develop the seed vaccine. And currently, yeah, we can say that uh, we are in the, yeah, about 55% of the uh, task. And we are targeting that in uh, February or March next year, we could deliver the seed vaccine to the industry. So uh, it could be processed further for a clinical trial phase one, two, and three. Okay, so it's um, it's coming along, but maybe some time yet before um, before it's able to be to enter into to clinical trials and and into um, uh, into regulation and approval. Uh, I wondered if we could as we're looking forward a little bit to that, actually talk a little bit about the process and how it is that vaccines go from research and development to approval in Indonesia. Um, and if there's any particular requirements for um, that the, the Indonesian regulators have to approve, to approve vaccines. For example, I know some countries, uh, the regulators require that the phase three trials must take place in that country and there to be data in that country for a, a, a vaccine to, to be approved. Yes, we receive a strong message from the president that the vaccine, uh, the so-called uh, red and white uh, vaccine uh, should be safe yet uh, effective for Indonesian people. So that's why we, we we are doing our uh, research uh, and development process very, very carefully. We are not in very hurry, although we know that uh, 
people are expecting the vaccine very badly. Yeah, but uh, we do it uh, very carefully. All the procedure we uh, we follow, and also we have already invited uh, the Indonesian FDA, as well as you understand that uh, this is very sensitive case, the halal vaccine, uh, yeah, the halal body. Uh, so we need to receive also uh, halal certification later. So that's why. Uh, those two uh, main uh, uh, government body were already involved from very very beginning so uh, we have to carefully select it, uh, all the the ingredients all the reagent all the processes and uh, to make sure that it fulfills all the requirement uh, uh, for safety efficacy as well as uh, for halal yeah, that's that's uh, the key point because we need to we have to make sure that the vaccine will be accepted by most of people in Indonesia. That's absolutely that's very important, and um, that's a great segue to what I wanted to talk about next was mm -hmm. a little bit more about um, vaccine uptake and and delivery. And once the vaccine is approved, um, do you think do you think it will make a difference? for people in Indonesia, do you think there will be more acceptance or people will be more likely or ready to receive a vaccine knowing that if there's a vaccine that has been developed by Indonesia for Indonesia? Yes, uh, there was a survey or at least two surveys there. And uh, the survey shows that, um, yeah, you know, currently we are, we are doing a phase three uh, clinical trial for Sinovac vaccine, and then uh, the survey. The survey was conducted by an independent uh, body, and then it was uh, to my surprise actually uh, about the result. Uh, Sinovac vaccine was was accepted by thirty thirty six something, but red and white vaccine was were was accept, accepted by about forty four percent. Uh, actually, we have not uh, um, made any promotion to the public about uh, red and white vaccine. But uh, to my surprise, that uh, at least 44% uh, of the population are already uh, prepared to accept uh, red, white, red and white vaccine. Although we, uh, the other 56% are still. Uh, Challenging, yeah, but but uh, even before any uh, publication on uh, red and white vaccine, uh, forty-four percent of population has already have already uh, accept the vaccine. Yeah, hopefully after we uh, completed the preclinical trial and also already uh, start the first uh, clinical trial, the acceptance rate uh, increased uh, significantly. And in that, in that survey, did they ask any questions of people about why, why they responded that they would accept or not accept? Do you have a, a sense of what people's thinking, the public's thinking is behind that? Yeah, uh, the same question actually, uh, uh, two uh, sorry, three uh, factors. 
One is the uh, safety and then the uh, efficacy and halal, whether the vaccine is halal or not. I see. That's, so that's a very important um, consideration. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I wanted to ask you because we know Indonesia is a very diverse and very, as mm -hmm. you've said, a very large country, but also a very, very diverse country. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in thinking about communications and how um, communities can be engaged in order to accept the vaccine, a vaccine once it's ready. I wonder if you had any reflections on whether there are particular strategies that will need to be used in order to reach what is a very wide range of people. Yeah, actually, uh, vaccine hesitancy and uh, also or refusal has been uh, experienced uh, since uh, several years uh, uh, by the uh, vaccine program yeah, of Ministry of Health. I belong also uh, a group, uh, the so-called uh, Indonesian Technical Advisory Group uh, for uh, Immunization, and uh, we realized that uh, to for some some population, it's still still difficult to accept uh, the, the vaccine. It happens in polio vaccine, in uh, diphtheria vaccine, yeah, in the past. So. Uh, that's why probably one or two years ago, uh, there were some outbreaks of uh, diphtheria, for example, in some part of Indonesia. And uh, in, if we look uh, back, then we realized that actually that area were not uh, vaccinated well uh, during the vaccination program a couple of years before. So we anticipate to face a similar situation. So uh, uh, what we have to do is uh, um, beside uh, formal information by the government or by the Minister of Health, we should use uh, informal uh, channels. I mean, we should uh, involve uh, uh, like uh, yeah, people uh, who could influence uh, Population in, the, in that population, yeah. For example, uh, um, yeah, we approach from the uh, religion uh, sector, not only Muslim, but uh, some of the uh, Christian population also, they uh, refuse to be vaccinated. So that's why we have to consider uh, religious leader to be involved in the uh, vaccination campaign. Yes, I think um, that's been the experience in, in uh, similar experiences in many countries, both with vaccine hesitancy, but also using those channels, social channels, religious channels and, and voices to speak through. Um, another sort of a related question I, I was just thinking as you were talking about using informal channels is also, um, the impact of or the use of social media and and popular media to spread messages i don't know um if is there much um practice in indonesia of using using social media or um these kinds of uh, digital channels to get out public health messaging and whether that might be used as well oh yes of course uh uh media uh, in particular electronic media is very very powerful uh, 
of course, uh, the mainstream uh, media like television is, uh, yeah, uh, almost certainly they take they could help us. Uh, even uh, currently, some of the television program they have already uh, included uh, um, promotion. I mean, uh, publication for vaccination. Um, but uh, now uh, we have also to uh, mobilize the um, the social media, yeah, because uh, hundreds of uh, social media platform uh, were there and uh, not hundred percent supporting. So we have to be uh, very careful and and to some extent. Uh, the informal or uh, yeah, informal uh, social media uh, is uh, more. They, I mean, they have uh, better access to the public. <laughs> so people probably uh, just open their. Uh, uh, cell phone and also receive a message directly rather than uh, watching the television. That's why uh, we have to work hard uh, with that uh, channel. Yes, it's um, it's a channel that comes with advantages and disadvantages, as you say. It's very mm -hmm. accessible, but yeah. um, there's also many the potential for many misinformation to to travel. Exactly. I think we covered a lot of ground in a short time, but okay. it was very, um, it was very interesting. So thank you again, Professor. Uh, thank you, thank you very much. You have been listening to Professor Amin Sobandrio, Chairman of the Eichmann Institute of Molecular Biology. I'm Camilla Burkott from the Indo-Pacific Center for Health Security. Thank you for joining us for this podcast, the first in a series of contain this episodes focusing on issues surrounding COVID-19 vaccines in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. Please subscribe to our podcast channel to hear future episodes discussing vaccine financing, priority groups, efficacy, stories of community initiatives launched to support vaccine uptake, and much more.